As the deer longs for flowing streams, so longs my soul for you, O God. Sometimes that longing is a result of doubt. And the very satisfaction to that longing is knowing that we know that we belong to our God and that we are His children. And so that touches on our message today on the assurance of salvation we may know in Christ. So I encourage you, if you have your copy of God's Word, to open with me to 1 John chapter 5 as I begin reading at verse 10. Hear now the Word of God. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself. He who does not believe God has made him a liar, because he has not believed the testimony that God has given of his Son. And this is the testimony, that God has given us eternal life, and this life is in his Son. He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life, and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. The Word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Our gracious and loving Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us, O Lord, this day, this Lord's day, our daily bread. Feed us with your word and feed us at your table. Impart to us the spiritual nourishment we so desperately need. And in your perfect and holy strength, sustain us. Lead us not in the path of temptation, of doubt, of any sin that would separate us from your love. But help us to walk in the light as you are in the light. And deliver us from the evil one, keeping our hearts and minds safe and sound in Christ Jesus. Grant your Holy Spirit in full measure to each of us. And by his work in us, allow us to read and hear your word in faith and with understanding. And even in the foolishness of preaching, may the message of the cross be the power of God to us who are being saved. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever, even as we await with hopeful confidence in the return of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. For we pray in his mighty and victorious name. Amen. You may be seated. As we consider the subject of the assurance of salvation, we are going to examine but one of the facets of this beautiful jewel of what God has given to us to comfort us and to assure us and to make us to know that He is our God. So there is so much the Word has to say to us about assurance. And this morning I would like to declare first that I, I do have good news and I have bad news. The good news is that in a world filled with sin, 
the flesh, and the devil. Assurance of salvation is the soft feather bed, as Kevin DeYoung has said, on which the Christian rests. Assurance is one of the greatest benefits of the Christian faith and the rightful inheritance of the child of God. In its enjoyment, we find hope and joy unsurpassed in this fallen world. And now for the bad news. The bad news is that assurance is sometimes, maybe even often, fleeting, elusive, weak and shaky, and and maybe even absent. But the good news is that everyone who truly believes in the Lord Jesus and sincerely loves Him and endeavors to walk in all good conscience before Him may know and be assured in this life that they are in a state of grace and that they are therefore able to rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. And this certainty is not some mere supposition or speculation based upon a fallible hope, but it is the infallible, trustworthy assurance of faith founded upon the God-given truth of the promises of salvation the internal evidence of those graces attached to the promises, and the very testimony of the spirit of adoption witnessing with our spirits that we, we are the children of God, the very spirit whereby we are sealed unto the day of redemption, as I began to paraphrase the confession. But the bad news again is that even though a person is truly saved by grace through faith, His infallible assurance isn't always so tied to the essence of faith that he knows this assurance immediately. But he may need to wait a long time for it and battle through many difficulties before he actually knows with confidence of this wonderful assurance. The good news is that the Holy Spirit causes us to know the things which are freely given to us from God. And he does this without some sort of extraordinary revelation. But through the right use of the ordinary means of grace in word, prayer, and sacrament. And through these we may come to truly know that we belong to God. And it is therefore the duty of everyone, everyone who believes on Christ, to give all diligence to make our calling and election sure. That our hearts may be enlarged in peace and joy in the Holy Spirit, in love and thankfulness to God, and in strength and cheerfulness in all the duties of obedience. So many Christians struggle with assurance because they direct their eyes within rather than without, rather than looking up to Christ. Of course, introspection serves its purpose in the Christian life, We are to examine ourselves to see whether we are in the faith. This is necessary and good. Yet so many Christians suffer from an overzealous introspection. Their eyes are so focused on their faults, their weaknesses and unworthiness that they too seldom look up to Christ. They too seldom look up to whence our help comes. And this can result in a questioning spirit. Do I bear enough of the fruit of the Spirit? 
Is my faith solid enough? Have I confessed and repented sufficiently? Or have I tricked myself into thinking that I am a believer? And all the while we forget to look to our Savior in faith. When we are in this state, the Lord's words, Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest, seem more like a Sunday school slogan than a promise from the Good Shepherd. As long as our gaze remains within, assurance will remain fleeting. No doubt we need to examine our lives and test the fruit, but true assurance, lasting assurance, secure assurance comes from looking to Christ and our union with Him. We want to see evidence of Christ's grace in our lives, but we realize these evidence are not, are not by seeking after them. We don't find them by seeking after them, not by seeking some special spiritual experience, or by pitting doctrine against love, love and doctrine are both graciously given of God. We realize these evidences by gaining a greater grasp on Christ. But how do we gain this greater grasp of the King of glory? How do we look to Him more? How do we trust in Him and know Him more? God has granted His means of grace to the struggling Christian for this very purpose. Into this dark world, God sent the light of His Word. This is the Word which is living and active and works in the hearts and minds of all His people. It discerns the thoughts and intents of the heart. We hear the true gracious voice of our Heavenly Father as we sit under the Word preached as we read it in our prayer closets, meditate upon it in our beds, and talk of it on the way. As the Spirit attends to the Word, it does not return void. It accomplishes the will of God and prospers it in the very thing for which God sends it. As the Spirit attends the Word, the truth of Christ occupies our minds. The promises of Christ comforts our souls. The beauty of Christ stirs our affections and the commands of Christ move our spirits. As we attend to the means of grace, the Holy Spirit encourages and affirms assurance within us. Too often we hear the voice of our adversary speaking loudly these lies into our minds, don't we? You aren't a child of God. Would God allow a wretched sinner like you into His family? Hath God really given you His promises? And if that weren't bad enough, our flesh then joins in as an accomplice. However, such indictments cannot stand in the light of God's Word. His Word pierces the darkness and is louder than any accusations the enemy can hurl at us. Can hurl at us as His sons and daughters. He who is within us is greater than he who is in the world. The Lord has not only given us His written Word, but He has also given us His visible Word. The Lord in His benevolent grace condescends to give us something we can see and touch and taste. Having created us with bodies, 
He knows we are naturally drawn toward the visible. So in the sacraments, He blesses His children with outward signs that confirm to our senses what the ear has heard and the eye has read. Hear then this exhortation. Dear struggling Christian, yes, I'm speaking directly to Christians. As we partake of the Lord's table today, be reminded that not only did Christ die for sinners, but He died for you. Not only did Christ shed His blood for sinners, but He shed His blood for you. Not only can sinners be united to Christ, but He is united to you. Just as real as the cup you will hold in your hand, so as real is Christ's love for you. As surely as you taste the bread and wine, so as surely should you taste Christ's peace this morning. As the bread and cup sustain your body physically, so Christ's grace promises to sustain you spiritually. All the promises of Christ are not only true, but they are truly yours. And baptism serves us in the same way. As the water flowed over your head, so surely are you washed in the blood of the Lamb. As you entered the waters of baptism, just as surely are you united with Christ in His life, death, and resurrection. The sacraments not only signify this truth to the struggling Christian, but they seal upon our souls the righteousness of the faith once delivered into which we are saved, are being saved, and will surely be saved. Finally, the Lord blesses us with the gift of prayer. What a relief this means of grace provides in our struggle for assurance. In prayer, God grants to us the privilege and the solace of crying out to Him, a cry granted only to His children. And as we plead with Him, our pleading never, ever falls on deaf ears. Our prayers ascend into the very throne room of God. As we speak into His ear, we may do so with boldness, we read in Hebrews. James asks, you have not, says, you have not because you ask not. As the Lord has given us prayer, He expects us to exercise this gift. He expects us to bring our petitions before Him with thanksgiving. He expects us to honestly cast all, all our worries and troubles before Him in prayer. When we struggle with assurance, we are to cry out along with the psalmist, How long, O Lord? There will be seasons when we pray the same question the psalmist does. Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long shall I take counsel in my soul, having sorrow in my heart daily? Remember, our Father in Heaven loves to give good gifts to His children. And the comfort of assurance is one of those good gifts. Only in Christ may we ever know genuine and not counterfeit assurance. But how can we know with assurance that He has redeemed us and that we now belong to Him? As we seek to answer that question, there are some biblical texts we need to read 
and understand and appropriately apply to our lives. Texts that challenge us to test and confirm that we are truly in the faith. And for the earnest Christian who regularly struggles with assurance, these passages may be passages that he dwells on regularly. And one of these is 2 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 5 and 6. Examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. Paul here is hopeful for the Corinthian church, but he also calls for an examination. The other text we should consider is 2 Peter chapter 1, verses 10 and 11, where we read, Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure, for if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. While there may seem to be a very similar call to self-examination in these verses, as we consider the context, a difference can also be seen. There's a difference between being told to test yourself to see if you are saved and being told to live so as to confirm that you are indeed saved. In 2 Corinthians, we see there are some people who have given significant evidence that they may not be true Christians. For, for example, just a few verses earlier in chapter 12, verses 20 and 21, Paul writes, For I fear lest when I come, I shall not find you such as I wish, and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, and tumults, lest when I come again my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. In other words, here are a people who have not repented of their sins and therefore are on the brink of being excommunicated. And then just a few verses later in chapter 13, Paul writes, You seek proof that Christ is speaking in me. Now that word proof here is the same word he uses two verses later in verse 5. Only here he says they are putting him to the test to prove that he, that he, is real in his speaking. So when he gets to verse 5, he responds something like, actually, folks, you should be testing yourselves, proving yourselves. You unrepentant folks, you should be testing yourselves to see if you are in the faith. So as we take this text and seek to apply it in our lives, the primary application this text reveals is, is that this is a command that is especially appropriate when we are living a life that is out of step with our profession of faith. And so we give evidence that we may not be a real Christian. In other words, is there unrepentant sin in your life? If so, examine, prove yourselves to see if you are truly in the faith. Repent and believe the gospel. Have you grown lax in the means of grace? Examine yourselves. And more particularly, is there a Paul in your life, 
who has identified unrepentant sin in your life? If so, examine and ask, is your faith genuine? Are you truly a Christian? But as we look at the context of the passage from 2 Peter, we see the call to be even more diligent to make your call in election sure, given as a part of a general exhortation in Christian living. That is, we see a pastoral exhortation to day by day have the seriousness of faith to pursue a life of holiness that confirms your calling. This we are to all to do and take heed to day by day. Do you have faith? Then don't forget virtue. Are you practicing virtue? Then pursue knowledge. Do you have knowledge? Then check your self-control. Is your self-control evident? Then persevere. As you persevere, abound in godliness. Is there godliness? Then show forth brotherly kindness. Do you live a life of brotherly kindness? Then let love abound. If these things abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ Himself. But if these things are lacking, know that you are like the one who is short-sighted or even blinded and has forgotten that he was cleansed from his old sins. So as we go to these two passages, we need to understand and apply them rightly. They're not to be a source of doubting or morbid introspection. And then there's the question of whether or not we are self-deceived. Here's what we read in Hebrews chapter 3. Beware, brethren, lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief departing from the living God. Followed by the solution. What is the solution? What is called for here in this text? But exhort one another daily while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. What's the answer to the question, might I be deceived? In fellowship with our brothers and sisters in Christ, encouraging us with the promises of God, giving us the warnings of God, and helping us to keep our eyes on life and faith, we have the prescribed way by which we avoid being self-deceived. This is a ministry that we all have. It is a ministry within the family and a ministry within the family of God. What a great opportunity to exercise a ministry of encouragement, exhortation, sharpening, and pointing each other to Christ daily. But returning now to our text from 1 John chapter 5, in verse 13 we read this, These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. As we read this verse, we should be asking ourselves, what things? What things has John written so that we may know and may continue? John has written this letter with a purpose in mind. Note, it is written to true believers, to true Christians, so that they may know they have eternal life and may continue to believe in Christ. And if I may add the purpose found in chapter 1, verse 3 to, to this, that your joy may be full. That our joy may be full and that we may know with full assurance that we have eternal life in Christ. This is the assurance of salvation 
that we all seek. With greater desperation at some times, admittedly, and less at others. So what has John written that will help us in this good and holy pursuit? First of all, it is interesting to note how many times John uses the word know or known in this short letter. In chapters 2 through 5, we find it some 40 times, I believe. I think it's fair then to conclude there is an emphasis on knowledge, on knowing things. John wants us to know Christ, know what He has accomplished, know the truth, know love, know that He abides in us, etc. And secondly, I would like us to now focus on eight checkpoints for reflection and truths that we find in 1 John and that we would do well to consider. Of course, I commend that we read the letter in its entirety. But as a help this morning, let us think of these eight objective tests that we can take and see if we are truly Christians, if we are in Christ. If we pass these tests, then we might know that we know that we possess eternal salvation with assurance and fullness of joy. If we stumble in the test, let's then receive them as encouragements to shore up what is weak or lacking. So here are the eight tests. The first one we find in chapter 1 of 1 John, verses 5 through 7. This is the message which we have heard from Him and declare to you, that God is light and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say that we have fellowship with Him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. If you have your copy of the Word with you, go ahead and follow along. We'll be marching chapter 1 all the way through chapter 4 in these eight tests. It is characteristic of an unregenerate, unbelieving person to be utter, utterly oblivious to the condition of sin within his life. That's John's point here. So the test here is, are you walking in the light? Is our life consistent with our confession? Or is there a disconnect and dissonance between our talk and our walk that is characteristic in the way that we live? If we never seek to apply the truths of Scripture to our lives, then we fail at this point. If, however, we embrace the instruction given in Scripture and we seek to consistently apply them to our lives, then we have fellowship with one another and have assurance that the blood of Christ cleanses us from all sin. You see how this test works? Second test, confession of sin. Still 1 John chapter 1, verses 8 through 10. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make Him a liar and His Word is not in us. The test is, do you know that you are a sinner and that you sin regularly? If so, good. That is a good indicator. Now, do you confess those sins? Yes, even better. Embrace the assurance that this provides, for He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, however, you believe you are fine, 
and that you rarely, if ever, sin, then please know this is a bright red warning light in your life. You are deceived. Your understanding of God's holiness and what He requires of you is deficient, and you make Him a liar, and His Word is not in you. Test 3, obedience. Chapter 2, verses 3 through 5. Now by this we know that we know Him if we keep His commandments. He who says, I know Him, and does not keep His commandments is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps His word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. By this we know that we are in Him. I think most of us here know and believe that we are saved by grace through faith, and that not of our own doing, but it is the gift of God. In confessing this, we know that this is not a call for salvation through law-keeping. This is a test to see if the love of God is truly in us and has thus changed our hearts. To give but one example of the obedience found in a changed heart, in Paul's great epistle to the Romans, which underlines the doctrine of justification by faith alone, toward the end, in chapter 13, beginning at verse 8, he writes, O no man... Owe no one anything except to love one another. For he who loves another has fulfilled the law. For the commandments, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not murder, you shall not steal, you shall not bear false witness, you shall not covet. And if there is any other commandment, are all summed up in this, saying, namely, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Love does no harm to a neighbor, therefore love is the fulfillment of the law. We keep God's commandments because we know Him, and we love Him, and we want to please Him. Even as a small child is grieved at his father's displeasure in disobedience, so we who love our Heavenly Father grieve when we break His commandments. And so we confess, repent, and return to His pleasure. This assures us of the genuine salvation we have in Christ. This is obedience. But if we reject His commandments, if they have no bearing in our lives, and sin does not grieve us, then we fail the test and can know that the truth is not in us. Test 4. Love for the brethren. Chapter 2, verses 9 through 11. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. He who loves his brother abides in the light, and there is no cause for stumbling in him. But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Love for our brother or hating our brother. This is a serious test. This is where self-deception is both a real possibility and difficult to sustain over time. This is where we need to truly check our hearts and take the test honestly. A couple of verses before this, John writes, Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. And this harkens back to John's gospel in chapter 15 where Jesus says, This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. If we are truly abiding in Christ then the possibility of hating those who are also abiding in Christ is an untenable argument. We are never justified in hating the brethren. 
We are commanded to love. Jesus said, as the Father loved me, I also have loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in His love. If we don't truly love one another, we show that we are in darkness, that we are blinded. If, however, we genuinely love one another in obedience to Christ, we can walk in the assurance that His light provides. Test 5. Hatred for the world. 1 John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it, but he who does the will of God abides forever. Where? are your true affections? Where are the primary motivations in your heart and in this life? In Christ, our affections are made new. In Christ, we are to set our minds on things above and not on things on the earth. For we die and our life is hidden with Christ in God. Those who are in Christ are no longer in bondage to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. New desires are planted in our hearts And those things we call worldly lose their luster. Holiness, beauty, and humility assume preeminence and derive their definitions from God. This is not a test that drives us toward a Gnostic existence, denying the goodness God has manifested in this physical world, but rather a test of our affections. Do we love the things of God such that our natural affections have been made new, and in accordance with His revealed will? If so, this test confirms the assurance of the Spirit's work in us. Test 6. Perseverance in doctrine, still in chapter 2, verses 24 through 25. Therefore, let that abide in you which you heard from the beginning. If what you heard from the beginning abides in you, you also will abide in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that He has promised us, eternal life. It is not uncommon for us to eagerly embrace the truth of the teachings of Scripture when we first receive them. They are fresh and new and filled with hope. And the more consistent the doctrine is we receive with the Word of God as we read it, the greater the delight we experience. But life is filled with challenges of all sorts. We experience disappointment, pain, and discouragement. A close friend betrays us. A child strays from the faith. Or cancer takes someone very dear to us. These trials can rock our faith and cause us to question the truth of Scripture. But this test calls us to abide in the truth to abide in Christ, and to persevere in the good news that we heard from the beginning. And as we do so, we remember the promise of eternal life that we knew in the beginning, and this is a great comforting assurance. Test 7, practicing righteousness. In chapter 3, verse 10, we read, In this the children of God 
and the children of the devil are manifest. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is he who does not love his brother. Just as there is a familial resemblance between children and their father, so too will there be a resemblance between children and their father in this spiritual family. If God is truly our father, we will not make a practice of sinning. We may forget who we are in sin, but our lives will not be characterized by unrighteousness if we are in Christ. This does not mean that we will not face temptations or even have sins that beset us at times. It does not mean, it does not mean we will be comforted, perf- conformed perfectly to Christ in this life, for we will not be able to do that until we see Him, and then we will be like Him. When God calls a person to Himself, He transforms His very nature so that He will be able to love and practice righteousness. In the new birth, we have been given everything we need for life and godliness. And by His grace, this godliness will become more and more evident as we progress in our sanctification. As we practice righteousness, this test shows us that we are children of God and therefore a measure of assurance is made known to us. And our eighth and final test is the Holy Spirit's testimony. We find this in 1 John chapter 4, verse 13. By this we know that we abide in Him, and He in us, because He has given us of His Spirit. And as we read earlier in the service from Romans 8, the Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And as I conclude with this eighth and final test from 1 John, I want us to know and embrace this as of ultimate importance. As we seek the comfort of the assurance of salvation, it is the Holy Spirit who is given as our comforter. The text from Romans 8 shows us that the Holy Spirit gives authoritative testimony which entitles believers to conclude that they have received the spirit of adoption and are heirs of God in Christ Jesus. Why is this important? From chapter 8, we see it is because this Holy Spirit witness is the remedy for spiritual bondage that produces fear. This Holy Spirit witness allows and enables us to cry, Abba, Father. This Holy Spirit witness causes us to know God's love revealed in the gospel and respond in faith and love. And this is not a direct revelation to the individual, but a new spiritual state of those who have the indwelling spirit where we are no longer ruled by enmity against God. And we have been given life and the spirit. And the spirit works in us and empowers us to put sin to death. This Holy Spirit witness leads us in the way of holiness so that we can now relate to God as sons. If I can draw us back for just a moment to last week's message that led up to the understanding that there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We used a courtroom metaphor. 
where the Apostle Paul presents the case for the prosecution, and then he presents the case for the defense, and then counsels us, even as a judge might, regarding our new liberty in Christ. If we then take and extend that legal courtroom analogy, the Holy Spirit, a person of known and improved integrity, comes into the court, gives testimony, bears witness fully and directly on behalf of the defendant. This testimony stops the mouths of all accusers and fills the one in whom there is now no condemnation with joy and satisfaction and assurance. The Holy Spirit is our paraclete, our advocate. He testifies that we are loved by God so that we know we are in union with the Father in Christ. He applies the Word of God and gives peace to His disciples, to you and to me. The very love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who is given to us, we read in Romans 5. This pouring points to the abundance of His love. Therefore, let us honor the Holy Spirit, not grieving Him, but rather receive His witness as God's own testimony, knowing that human testimony, that little voice in your head, is fallible, is feeble. Know also that your pastor, your parents, your good friends, your trusted online community, your self-help guru cannot do this. They cannot assure you that you are born of God. God, the eternal spirit alone, can do this work. He alone is competent to this work. Our primary ground of assurance lies in the promises of God in Christ. These promises need to be applied to our hearts. And when they are, they will bear fruit in our lives. And we are called to live fruitful lives day by day and to know the assurance of God and to be salt in the earth. But we don't judge our fruit by the fruit we see in others. So take these objective tests for yourself with all honesty. Go back through 1 John and read it with care. It's not a comparative analysis, nor should we fool ourselves as we take the test. The standard is God's standard. Are you perfect? No, none of us are. The good news from the testimony of Scripture is that we can know the assurance of salvation. He who believes in the Son of God has the witness in himself that we may know that we have eternal life. The practical message for the true Christian is that faith must triumph in the end since it is a gift from the triune God. Faith must triumph. It's from God. Christ will ultimately win the day in us and for us. Let us therefore be diligent to honor Him. For ultimately, ultimately, our assurance is not about self-confidence, but about confidence in the Father and in the Son and in the Holy Spirit. That's what faith and assurance are all about, for of Him and through Him and to Him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. Let's pray. Our gracious Father, oh, our gracious Father, we do so earnestly seek the fullness of the assurance of Your great salvation. We believe, O oh Lord, help our unbelief. For those who are presently struggling with doubt, 
Draw them to the truth of your word and cause them to seek with desperate souls the comfort and assurance that comes only by the Holy Spirit. Unplug their ears that they may hear his testimony. Open their understanding that they may know the earnest of his down payment. Grant them godly palates that they may taste his first fruits and know that they may indeed know that they belong to you. We pray that you may be pleased to accomplish this great work in all our lives, praying in the triumphant name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. Amen.